you just prepare yourself the best you can. And if on the day there are people who are far and away so much superior than you, then you've just got to accept that, you know, that's what happened on that day. And, you, you know, you, you'd be happy with your own performance. That's what's more important. This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. An absolutely packed episode today. We've got the Boston and London marathons to talk about, the end of the spring classics racing season, and an absolute bombshell in triathlon, which we'll get to, which if you've been watching the news at all, you will have seen the big doping scandal that's just happened. We'll get to that later in the episode. But Dad, welcome in for another big one. Let's start with what are you grateful for? Thanks, George. Well, it seems like it's been ages since we uh, last uh, connected uh, on the podcast, uh, but it hasn't actually. <laughs> um, but it's just because once you start traveling, um, you really feel like you're not in your consistent home environment. And that's my gratitude is uh, coming home is nothing better. It's great traveling. Don't get me wrong. I love it. Uh, getting to be so fortunate. I should be grat- grateful for that as well. Fortunate to to actually be able to travel now and um and uh you know it's well documented our experiences in belgium and uh coming home to to uh new grandchildren we've now got three grandchildren which uh which is great the the, the little family's growing um and to see everybody uh at home and um and yeah just being back in your own house um your own bed not out of a suitcase yeah really grateful for uh for what what was home and what was waiting for me uh, when I finished the trip. So yeah, that's my gratitude for today. I love it. Um, we, we, yeah, we've both been doing a fair bit of traveling. I once once I left you in Belgium, I went on to America, and my gratitude is uh, I got to see last week a childhood favorite band of mine. Um, a lot of people will have heard of them, Blink One Eighty Two. Um, they haven't played live together in seven years. They haven't played in Australia since two thousand and one. You know, I was eight years old. Um, I never thought I would get the chance to see them, um, but they reformed and they did a show and I got to see them. So, um, that is my gratitude. I just can't believe that, um, that I got to see them live. I was, I was just shaking my head in disbelief the whole time. That's awesome. Um, and, uh, I've grown up uh, listening to Blink 182 in the car on many of those trips. So, um, I kind of feel like I've grown up with them as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on, we've got a lot to talk about. A lot's been happening in sport. Where do you want to start? Okay, let's uh, let's hit it right off with the, uh, the the upcoming PTO in Ibiza. Um, and what a field. And I just want to talk about the PTO a little bit. And I just think this is the future um, of triathlon. It's, and it's about time. Um, I wish this was around when I was competing as a professional um, it, it is just the answer to what the pros have been waiting for and it's so good to see an organization um, get the funding uh, get the prize money get the the, the coverage uh, get what the the best athletes in the world deserve really um, and it gives it gives more um, uh, incentive for future uh, young athletes to see that there is a future in in triathlon because previously there really isn't it's a it's a basically 
they're doing it because they love doing this sport, which is which is fantastic, and it's really important that that's part of your um, outlook um, in, as to why you're doing uh, whatever you're doing, whether it's football, soccer, basketball, triathlon, running. It doesn't matter. You've got to want to do the the event, not just for the prize money, but it actually makes it worthwhile now to have, you know, in this race they're paying down to the, you know they're paying down to thirtieth place, and there's six hundred thousand uh, dollars up for grabs. Um, three hundred thousand uh, dollars for male and for female. A hundred thousand dollar first prize. Um, it, it's it's really what what should be happening in in uh, professional triathlon. Um, we're not talking about age groupers in this situation. We're just really focusing on you know the the pathway for for a pro is just really not good. Um, and we don't want one or two people making a living out of out of this sport. We, we'd rather have like golf or basketball or soccer where you've got hundreds of people being able to you know make a living out of the sport um and and i think that's this is only going to be better for the sport um it will be interesting to see the difference between the following um for the pto and the following for ironman now two different organizations um and you know are they up against each other probably but not not really um um, you know one is really focusing on the pros um, and the growth of the sport obviously um, through that avenue and and having TV coverage um, and aiming to get the best athletes on the start list. And, and in this race, they're pretty much the women have got the top 10 ranked PTO athletes on the start list. That, that's pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and, the, sure. and, the, and the males have got you know, an equivalent except for probably Gustav Eden is the only standout who's not actually competing. Um, you've got the return of Jan Fredino, um, which I just can't wait. To, to see what happens and and it's like uh you know cycling analogy of where van Aert, Pogacar and uh, Vanderpol it's you know getting uh Brownlee um you know Fredino Blumenfeld Max Newman you know Sam Laidlaw although he's I think he's scratched now but uh, but there's so much depth in that race and to see these guys go head to head is going to be fantastic in a short race not an Ironman um, where you can actually race and, and I'm not saying they that pros don't race the Ironman they certainly do but but it's it's a race where you can really have a crack where it's you know you know an 80k and a tw- an 18k run so it, there's no holes barred here the best the best going to win here um, and I just can't wait and the women's field is so deep um, and you know from a you know from a bias perspective we've got you know a few Aussies in in these races with Ash Gentle her form last year was just incredible um, and you know it'd be interesting to see how she comes back after a, a little bit of a, a period where there's no races against uh, the best competition in the world over our summer um, she did race last week and she still got on the top three but it wasn't a performance that I think she'd be that happy with um, but to have her and Grace Thick and um, I think Ellie Salthouse is on the start list as well um, so that's pretty fantastic and in the males we've got um, Max Newman who's, whose form is just been fantastic since Ironman last year and winning WA Ironman as well, um, and I just can't wait to see what he can do in in the in the summer season in Europe. It's he is an exciting Aussie athlete, and uh, Aaron Royal and and the ever <laughs> Cam Worth. I mean, to have him in the race, <laughs> it, it just blows yours and my mind. Turns up everywhere. Turns up everywhere, doesn't he? Does Roubaix <laughs> a month ago, and then 
Yeah, so it's going to be an interesting field from the Aussie point of view. Um, but yeah, look, I, I just can't wait to see. And I'm really wrapped at PTO. I've, I've really, you know, they've got, they're still learning, uh, they're, they're still growing, they're, they're understanding what, what it needs to take to, to get this sport to the next level as a professional sport. Um, but it's exciting for the pros. And uh, I think it'll be good for the amateurs, uh, for, for the sport of triathlon anyway, the age groupers, because the sport will get more coverage, which will in, encourage others to join the sport, which is what we want. We want participation. That's, that's kind of what you know we want the world to be a healthier place and anything you can do to get people off the couch whether it's triathlon or just walking or doing a 5k park run it just doesn't matter getting people to be a healthier and fitter version of themselves is what actually you know which is what we're about on this podcast is to you know and we use we use races and and uh you know exciting things that are happening around the world in the world of sport to, uh, to to get people to be motivated to get to that next training session and and have their own little version of uh, you know what what they can do to improve themselves um, as an athlete it's a really great point you've made and I, I I I'm so excited like you to see such a deep field and this is completely contrasted with um, the news that we will we'll touch on now which is the fact that uh, pro triathlete Colin Chardia just got um, done for doping, uh, EPO. Uh, he came out and admitted guilt. Um, and I don't want to spend too much on this because it's been so widely covered. Every single triathlon news source podcast um, out there has already covered it. A lot of pros have come out and, and said their thoughts about it. Um, but it's, it's funny what you just said about, you know, why we love watching pro sport and, and the excitement that it, it uh, creates. And it's kind of the, that epitome that you're looking for. Um, and it inspires you to go and race. Um, but I just get so disappointed and almost sometimes get a little bit disillusioned with the sport when this when this stuff comes up. And it's it, it does happen a lot. Um, you know, athletes do get banned constantly. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I remember when the Lance Armstrong stuff broke it it completely shattered me um he was he was absolutely by far and away my hero growing up and then i just got so disillusioned with cycling i stopped watching cycling for years after that because i just thought well they're all doing it then um well that, and they came out and they said they were and then this kind of news gets dropped um and you start to ask the same sort of questions you go oh, far out if he's doing it who else is doing it um we know that testing in triathlon is actually pretty pathetic compared to you know cycling sam long came out last year and said he, he hadn't been tested for months uh, which is just insane um yeah so look i i think it was a reminder to me that i love watching the pros um i love watching the best athletes in the world race uh, but we also do do this for ourselves and it's not just about the pro races you know where we we love these sports cycling triathlon running um, but first and foremost, we do it for ourselves. And then you have to remember sometimes not to put athletes up on a pedestal, even though we sit here on this podcast and, and get really excited about athletes and we, and we love talking about them. Um, it's just, it's a funny contrast. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I, I, you know, the, the individual athlete who's done the wrong thing, you know, I, I'm kind of a bit amazed um, and and agree but disagree as well with the reaction a little bit. Um, I just got people have to be careful getting on their high horse. Everybody in the world makes mistakes, and some are huge, some are minor, some are everything in between. And you've just got to be careful when you start, you know, lining up people um, personally uh, to criticise their actions. Um, you know, it, the person isn't the demon here; it's what he did is is what's wrong. Um, person could be a lovely person, and and you know we've got to be careful about the character and 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 really um, 
you know, putting that person into a spiral of depression. Uh, I, I just, I just worry that um, you, you know you, you're really setting people up for for you know a really poor outcome for their future. And I know every decision we say this in in our podcast. Every decision you make as a, as an athlete has consequences, and I'm talking about in the race, but also. Outside of the racing situation, every decision you make has consequences. So, you just have to be a little bit careful um, on really demonising um, people who make mistakes. And, and I'm not belittling what they're doing. And I, you know, I definitely felt that when I was competing, there were people who were getting an unfair advantage. But my mindset was: look, I have no control over that. I can only control my uh, direct. Um, method of approaching every race and every training session and if I can be the best version of myself no matter what happens around me I have no control over that and if if I'm performing it the best I can and if it's only going to give me 20th place then you know so be it I'll have to cop that um and uh, you know frustratingly later on you find out there were people doing this that and the other thing and that kind of you know sticks in your throat a little bit um so there is obviously the disappointment um associated with people who are getting an unfair advantage um and you know it it has huge consequences for prize money for rankings for um for people who are losing against these people questioning their training techniques and 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 tr- questioning everything about what they're doing why isn't this good enough why can't i stack up against guys who are so far ahead of me and it turns out you can't because they're getting an unfair advantage so it has amazing widespread consequences for for everything to do with the sport i'm not just talking about triathlon um we are naive to think that there is only one person doing this um, and just like uh, with the Lance Armstrong thing, it, 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 you know, as much as people um, tried to pull him down, there were pretty much, you know, a huge percentage of people doing the same thing as he was. He was still the best athlete um, because, you know, there were a lot of people doing what he was doing who couldn't beat him and that they, were, they were almost on the same playing field. Um, so, you know, the fact that, you, you know, I get on my high horse about AFL and, and it's an Australian football uh, league here in Australia where, you know, it, they're really proud that there's very few um, drug cheats in the sport. Well, I debate that. <laughs> if you don't test, you're not going to find anybody. And I think triathlon's in the same in the same position. If you don't test enough, sure, you won't find anybody. It feels like and seems like your sport's clean. But I'm really pleased to hear now that uh, at every event, um, there's going to be urine tests and blood samples taken. And, and that should be what it should be for every professional triathlete who competes. Um, I know it's expensive, but that's the only way that, that the sport can be on an even playing field. Sure, there will be people who are so far advanced scientifically who probably can beat those tests. Um, but, you know, at least we've got to be seen to be trying. And, uh, and we've got to make it a playing, even playing level field for everybody competing. And therefore, it, that's more enjoyable for us as spectators watching the pros. Um, it's not going to take away from our own um, health and fitness and awareness of what we're doing. We're just doing our best with given the circumstances we have and doing everything with, within our legal uh, measures to to be the best version of ourselves. And and this is another example. I do coach a lot of uh, masters athletes um, who have gone to world titles uh, all over the world, and there've been some unbelievably distracting, I would call them, results that our athletes are competing against. For example, sixty-five to seventy-year-olds time trialers able to time trial at forty-six to forty-seven k's an hour in some of these events is just, to me, not real. Um, you know, I just don't think that 
that there's these these results are real and so they must be getting some help in some way or and I don't have any evidence about that except for the data the data tells me that that's something that I like to think that you know some of the the results that I've been able to achieve as a 55 year old 50 year old 60 year old now 65 year old nearly there's no way I'm capable of doing that and I'm training reasonably seriously, I think. Um, and if I'm only comparing it against myself, sure, there's people who are going to be better than me. But if I'm struggling to ride 43 k's an hour, um, I don't see how someone can be literally 4 k's an hour faster than me um, over over 20 k's. So so there's going to be doubt even in age group athletes. So, uh, but, but once again, my advice to the athletes I'm coaching is you just prepare yourself the best you can. And if on the day there are people who are far and away so much superior than you, then you've just got to accept that, you know, that's what happened on that day. And, you, you know, you, you'd be happy with your own performance. That's what's more important. Yeah, yeah, that's um, spot on. The disappointing part is all the consequences that happen and, and this has a lot of consequences around it because of the amount of people he was training with. You know, he was living with Lionel Sanders, um, Mikael Eden is his coach, um, so it potentially just puts a shadow over all these people involved. Obviously, anyone that's close to him has come out straight away and distanced themselves from him, which you'd expect them to do. He said as he was doing it all alone, you know, how can you trust someone that was has just been proven to be a liar? Um, that's that's the most disappointing part is, is all those consequences for how much it impacts other people. Um, and, you know, I'll be so angry if, for example, Sam Long came second at the US Open last year to him. I'd be so angry if I was Sam because he took away Sam's, um, you know, Sam's time. He would be the US Open champion. So, um, anyway, we're, we'll move on from this one. Um, one thing that did give me hope was the Peter Bowl saga, which happened a couple of months ago, um, came out and he had a, a sample that tested positive um, and he came out and said what every athlete says and um, says, I'm clean, I've given them everything, um, uh, I want my name cleared. Um, but you just as soon as someone returns a positive res- result, you don't trust them at all. Um, and I was so, again, disappointed. My heart just sank when I saw that news. Um, but um, everyone waited for his B sample to come back. Um, and it came back negative, and it was it was a false reading on the on the first one, the pos- the A sample. So that was actually for me really encouraging to hear that. Oh, um, you know, <laughs> it's not just another um, hero athlete that's going to let everyone down. Um, that that gave me hope that yeah, maybe not all the pros are actually on it. You know, <laughs> um, anyway, we'll we'll move on from this topic. No, I, I agree. And uh, look, the disappointing part about the Peter Bowl was that the A sample should not have been advertised. It should have been kept in-house until the B sample came out. And that would have abs- absolutely not had people you know, dragging his name through the mud. Um, and that that's irreparable damage happened to him as, as a reverse. Um, you know, by association, you know, an A sample comes up doubtful, um, and everybody jumps to the band, you know, on the bandwagon that oh, you know, no wonder he's so good, he's he's cheating. When in fact it wasn't the case, and and it's hard to get that mud off um, once it's been thrown. So that's the disappointing part for me. It works both ways. The consequences of doing doing you know exposing that A sample before the B sample, I just think that was oh, so disappointing um, yeah. and almost that, des- him, yeah. th- that deserves to be having some sort of consequences for mm-hmm. um, for clearing his name. I don't. I just think they they brushed it aside a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, spot on. And and 
talking about running, it's one of the topics we actually want to we want to touch on. There was uh, we've had the London and Boston marathons um, happen in the last month, and boy, there was some exciting results that we really want to talk about and and look at. And I do want to just do a special mention to Australia's Brett Robinson. He is his form is unbelievable. Um, his marathon running is so good. He didn't run his best time at London this year, but he still um, came seventh um, in in a really really strong field. Uh, he run he. He broke the Oz record back in December, where in Japan he ran 207.51. He's still relatively new to marathons. I think he's only done eight or nine. You know, he, he moved up to the distance the last couple of years. But um, on a recent podcast, he said that he attributes his improvements and his form to just years of consistent 160 kilometer weeks. You know, that's his that's his training volume. And I just really wanted to touch on that because it's just something that you say over and over, but something really special seems to happen when athletes can put together a few years of consistency. And we're seeing that with him right now, and it's really exciting. And we saw the exact same thing with Stewie McSwain's development. You know, he just put together a few really good years, injury-free, sickness-free, um, and exploded on the world stage. Yeah, that, that layering, we call it. Uh, you and I have really discussed this quite a bit on the podcast. Uh, the layering of fitness, the bank, you know, you're building that fitness bank that, that can't be, you know, you, the analogy of the bank is you can't take anything out of the bank because um, it's supposed to be secure. And and that's the same thing with fitness. It just builds layer upon layer of fitness week in, month in, year in. And we've got so many examples of age groupers who have stayed consistent. And we also have lots of examples. I really want to make this point of those athletes that we do train who want to train with us for 12 weeks and then take two or three months um, and then come back to us for another 16-week block and then take two or three months away again and then come back to us for another. And the, the growth between those two parallel athletes is absolutely now so exposed. Um, what happens to the guy who stays consistent? He just builds layer upon layer and eventually does the Brett Robertson, which is uh, Stuart McSwain, which is just all of a sudden – it's not all of a sudden. It's two or three years of layer, layers of fitness becomes the athlete that he should be. Um, whereas when you look at the person who comes on and off the program, he might do that 12-week block and get to 80 or 85% of his potential fitness uh, goal and then takes two or three months off. No matter what his best intentions or her best intentions are, their fitness drops back to 50 or 60% and then we spend the next six of the 18-week block getting them back to where they were and then we can only then proceed to go forward. So that layer of building that we're talking about isn't the same and the athletes who are on and off uh, with the inconsistency, they're the ones who who don't ha have the improvement that we're talking about with even the pros um, and, and it filters right through down to the amateurs. The age groupers we've found to be phenomenal. Those in our second or third or fourth years with us on the program are the ones that are hitting their straps. Yeah, it's 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 awesome to see, and it's it's just a really good reminder as always. Um, so I want to talk about the actual races, and then I want to start with the Boston Marathon. Um, you know, there's there's six major marathons. Is that right, Dad? Or five? Um, New York, London, yeah, Tokyo. It, it's an interesting one that people want to put their their marathon up as a major, yeah. but uh, it, it will be like the the tennis one day, and uh, and the monuments in cycling, and uh, the world yeah, championships yeah. in other sports. But yes, there are some certain marathons. But I just think I, I look at now the fastest marathon in Berlin is that you know mm. mm -hmm. the top the top sort of eight times in the world yeah. are all run at Berlin. Probably. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, Kipchoge ran at Boston. Um, he's second time, I think, competing at Boston. And he's touted as one of the greatest runners ever, let alone marathon, runner, marathon runners ever. And he lost. He lost the race. He came eighth. He had a big blow up. Um, and there's a lot of speculation about like what happened. And um, I thought it was really cool to see an athlete who just seemed so invincible. Um, he just seemed like a robot the way he could throw together his performances uh, actually have a bad day and it happens to people and a few things went wrong. He, uh, he missed his, he missed his bottle at the 30 kilometer mark. Um, he said he had left leg problems. Um, there was, I saw a really interesting video online where someone was comparing the fact that he was still wearing the Nike alpha flies and the top three runners of the race were all in ASICs, I think. Um, and supposedly because it was a wet day, the, the Nikes don't drain the water as well as the ASICs. And, um, you know, over a marathon distance, that could have a really uh, big impact. Um, but yeah, it was, it was good in a way to see him have a bad day. Uh, and also, Dad, the way he um, responded afterwards was just so impressive. He was just so gracious and humble in defeat. Um, and it was an awesome way that we should all, you know, take a learning from for when you have a bad race, how to handle it. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm really unashamedly saying I'm in love with Wout Van Aert and the way he races, <laughs> yeah. and I'm in love with Kipchoge the way he races. And it's not just about their racing; it's about how they hold themselves in any situation. They they don't spit the dummy. They accept that you know. <laughs> They're going to have a bad day at some stage in their career. Um, and let's face it, both of those examples haven't had too many bad days, but they're not winning every single time they're racing. Um, Kipchoge's pretty much doing that. But, but you know, the, the competition now from Kelvin Kipton is is right there. A guy who's actually run 15 seconds slower than him, um, you know, last week at London and, you know, now game on. Um, and... And it's kind of a little bit sad because Kipchoge's coming to the end of his career. And is he has he got another one of those two hour marathons in him? Whereas this guy seems to be just the next best thing, and uh, and his time is just far and above better than anybody else except for Kipchoge. Um, had Kipchoge not been around, he's he would have been the world record holder and the fastest marathoner ever to ever to you know start the start line and. And, you know, I, I just think this is so exciting for marathon, for the sport of marathon. Yeah, let's touch on Calvin Kipton's performance at London. So, as you just said, it was the second fastest marathon time ever, which, you know, all the fast times are at Berlin, but he's, he's around 2.01.25, which is, yeah, 16 seconds behind Kipton. In the rain. Yeah, in the rain. Um, in a potentially slower course. Yeah. I saw this great uh, infograph online. Someone had put together um, how the London course uh, is potentially slower, like where you'd lose time compared to Berlin. Um, and they calculated had he run the same way um, in Berlin and it would have equated to like a 159.50. I can't remember how they worked it out, but it was pretty funny to see that like he's absolutely flying. Um, but the funniest part about this, and I'm sure the listeners will like hearing this, it's, it's your favorite thing to see, is that he did the most insane negative split ever. Uh, he did the fastest um, second half of a marathon by a country mile. Um, I think his first... His first uh, half marathon was an hour one or something, and then he came home in 50, yeah fifty nine forty five. So he's gone sub sixty in the back end, and he was absolutely motoring. I think there was two his the thirty to thirty five k and thirty five k to forty k. He's run sub fourteen minutes for both of those five k's. Um, he's just absolutely flying. Um, he blew the field apart. It was it's quite scary to watch. And so yeah, like you're saying, him and him versus Kipchoge is going to be. Uh, pretty awesome to watch. 
And not to put a dampener on it, but instantly I see something like that, just after we talked about the the drug fiasco in triathlon, you've got this impression that if it's so outstanding, can it be real? And therefore, can Kipchoge's results be all real? And that's what the problem with when you start hearing about you know people who are getting an unfair advantage and, and all of a sudden you can't trust anything anymore. But let's just not go down that track. Let's just go down with what we're seeing. And, and at the moment, um, the one thing I wanted to talk about just quickly on that was his execution um, and and, you know, when we compare his execution, which ended up being 13 seconds slower than Kipchoge's uh, best ever, um, he was a minute behind Kipchoge at halfway um, when that, if you compare both events. And, and for anybody out there who doubts that running a negative split is the best way to go, and Kipchoge ran a negative split that day as well, by the way. So, and I've said this many times, every single marathon or every single event that's 10K or above the negative split is the world's fastest time. And you very rarely get someone who runs a 59 first half and then can hang on to run you know, a 60 second half to, or 61 second half to get a 201. They're going to more likely run a 62 or 63. You know, There's so many examples in training where I can do my third best effort at you know, after I'm trying to do three efforts of the same level, my third one's always better. Um, you, you, your body seems to warm up to the task better than than trying to do it earlier. Um, I saw a great YouTube video, and I'm getting off the topic. I know we haven't got much time, but um, a guy who's a really gun runner, he's he's able to run 229. That's his PB. So he was at the pointy end of the field, and he did this vlog on YouTube, and I I just thought I'd just watch this to see what it was about. And, and he was talking about um, his goal, and it was beautifully filmed. He had people everywhere all over the course with videos, and he, he put together this fantastic 30-minute video on on his race. And, and he was trying to run 227, I think, or I just beat his 229, but he had aspirations of a 225, which is the pointy end of running. He's a gun runner, this guy. Um, Anyway, I start watching the video and and he's talking as he's running. That's how how comfortable he is in the first half of this race. He is talking Mm -hmm. on his phone, filming (laughs) himself running in the first 5, 10K. So so this guy's really on on top of it. He's he's in this pack of runners of 15 and and they're really running along and he's hiding in the pack and he's getting his nutrition. He's talking about how he's doing all the right things. He was doing all the right things except the pack he was with was the wrong pack. And they went through halfway in 111. And this guy's a 229 runner. And I'm, I'm halfway through the video yelling at the video going, you're in the wrong pack. And I don't know what his outcome was. I don't know whether he was going to do the, the result or not. But already, if I was his coach at halfway, I'd been going, what the hell are you doing? He's run a 111. So that's going to be equating to, if he runs a negative split, a one a 222 or under, which is going to be a seven-minute PB, which this is not possible at as an age grouper. Uh, I don't care what you say. You're not going to do that at that end. As a three-hour 30 runner, it's possible to run seven-minute PB. A four-hour marathon runner, it's definitely possible to run you know, that fast, faster. Anyway, the story progresses and he just gets slower and slower and slower and he ends up running a 118 second half and finishes with a 229. So he still breaks 230, but it's a horrible feeling he can. He's talking about how bad it was, and he gets to the end, and they interview him, and he, had, you know, it's all emotional, and he's and his partner's there, and it's and it's a fantastic little video. And the one thing that stuck in my my throat was, and he said, "Oh, clearly I'm not fit enough for this. I 
need to train better. And I'm yelling at the screen, no, mate, your execution caused the whole problem. You actually would have done probably a 227 had you run through in 124 and and come home in 123. Um, and you were... Uh, sorry, 114 and 113, you would end up with a, two, a 225. Um, and so he didn't actually understand what he did wrong. And, <laughs> yeah. and therefore, he's going, to, he's going to make the same mistake again. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And until, until you realize what you're actually doing wrong, and, and, and I think it was intentional by uh, Kevin Kipton to run, to run that way and, and understanding that a slow conservative start compared to your own ability is what you should be doing and not run with a group of people who are way above what you're supposed to be doing. You will get the best outcome. Yes, yeah, so exciting to watch uh, yeah, Kipton's performance. Uh, and then I want to touch on um, some others who are absolute, absolute standout um, performances. And, and one is the winner of the London Women's Marathon, which is Safan Hassan. Um, and this is so impressive because of because – of, one, this is her first ever marathon, marathon debut, and she wins. Um, but she's 5K and 10K Olympic champ. Um, she's Her ability to change distances is just absolutely incredible. She's one of all round, one of the greatest runners all round. You know, you normally get a runner that specializes in a distance. Um, but her times from 800 all the way up to the marathon now are just absolutely insane. Uh, she's the only ever athlete, male or female, to win the 1500 and the 10K at World Champs. And she's only the second woman ever to win the 5K and 10K double at the Olympics. And her 800 time is 156, which is world class. There's not many women around the world that can run 156, 1500, 351. Um, you know, the gold medal was won at the Olympics in 354, 355 last year. Um, PB of 351 is just off world record. She runs a 412 mile. Her 5K PB is 1422, 1422, yep. Um, and the marathon time was 2.18. I just think that performance in your marathon debut is just is just ridiculous. It's just it's kind of freaky to be honest to see that happen. So it was it was it was really cool to watch. Everyone was wondering how she was going to go in her marathon debut and um, far out. That was that was incredible. Well, yeah, George, it's a great uh, great mention of her because I've watched her run Diamond League and she has got the best kick. Uh, going round in 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 women's and men's sport, um, you know, no matter what the situation, you, you would you wouldn't back against her if she's right there with a lap to go. And and I was watching the finish of the women's uh, London Marathon, and I was thinking that because there was four women who potentially could have won that race. Um, and don't forget, she had to stop and stretch because she had a little tight <laughs> yeah. quad halfway yep. through the race. Yep. And and then when I was watching at the I think it was the thirty kilometer drink station or thirty five kilometer drink station, she missed mm-hmm. it. So she turned and ran mm-hmm. back <laughs> to get her drink yep. and then caught back up. And so here she was sitting in a pack of five girls. You don't have you don't have this very often, five people going to the finish line. And I was thinking, do these girls they must have to do something? To, because they know how good a sprinter she is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the only unknown is, can she sprint at the end of a marathon? marathon yeah. And and she she she's sitting there just biding her time. And one of the other girls really put the hammer down and dropped one of the other girls. So it was down to four. Then then she did another surge and dropped the other one. So it was down to three. Um, and then they all ran together. And then there was like 600 to go, 500 to go. And I'm thinking, what is, what's going to happen here? It was so exciting to watch. And... And Hassan, she just waited for 300 and then just ran a 50-second last <laughs> yeah. 300 yeah. and won, won by 10 metres. Yeah. 
Um, and it was it was just someone who waited waited patiently, knew her strengths, and executed to perfection. And the, Anne ran a two eight eight. Yeah, yeah. And God, sprinting at the end of a marathon, I just couldn't think of anything worse. And the exact same thing happened in Boston. Um, both Chibet, who won the Evans Chibet, who won the men's marathon, and Helen O'Beary, who won the women's, both won by less than fifteen seconds. Which I just think that's so brutal in a marathon. Um, yeah, just having to having to get to the end with those heavy legs and do a sprint. Um, yeah, couldn't think of much worse. Well, don't forget Ironman Texas uh, a couple of weeks ago. There was a three way finish at the, in the men's event with um, uh, like there was only th- I think twenty seconds between first, second, and third. Yeah. I mean, at the end of an Ironman, it comes down to. <laughs> oh, it comes down to the mindset, mm. you know, and obviously the physical is important. You are either coming home strong or just running to a good pace or fading. You're in one of those three camps, aren't you? Um, so, you know, you can still change your mindset no matter which camp you're in there. If you're exhausted and you've got nothing left, you are amazed if there's a, you know, the old uh, analogy is if there's a tiger chasing you, you'll do unbelievable mm. things to get away yeah. from it, no matter how tired you yeah. are. And and that's one of the things I used to tell you guys as little kids is, you know, finish strong because, you know, imagine there's a tiger chasing you, then you'll have a different mm-hmm. mindset. Yeah. Um, um, you know, you fight for life rather than uh, fight for the sprint. So it, it is an interesting thing that the person who's got the will to win will probably prevail. Mm. Talking talking about winning races and, and a winning mindset, I want to finish off by switching back to cycling. In the spring, classics races have finished, but all the major ones and the, and the minor ones um, basically for the season as we start to get into the Grand Tour uh, season. But um, there's some just uh, – some athletes I wanted to touch on and and the first is Demi Bollering who had one of the most incredible spring classic seasons uh, in women's history, in women's cycling history. She's probably only eclipsed um, by one other person but she came first. And that's her coach. <laughs> is Anna Vanderbregen her coach? I, d- I didn't know that. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, She's the other person to have done those last three yeah, events. Yeah, um, she, she got This season she got first at Strata Bianchi, first at Dwarves of the Landerin, first at Amstel Gold, first at the Flesh Wallone, first at Liège Gaston Liège and second at Tour of Flanders and behind her teammates. So, you know, you could argue that if your teammates up the road you might not be chasing them but um, that is a ridiculous season. Um, and uh, as you just said, I didn't know Anna, Van Der- Anna Vanderbregen was coaching her, but um, she did basically the same thing in 2018, but she actually won Flanders um, and Liège. So um, I just think that is an um, incredible season that's worth highlighting and um, also because of the way she races. And again, this is, what, this is why we love watching pros to see how they go about their tactics um she won so many of these races by taking the race on which is exactly what you say if you if you want to give your chance self a chance to win you've got to do daring moves and she had so many moves where she was 15k out 30k out and she was really going for it and they didn't all stick but she did still end up winning the race and so i think you're putting yourself in that position you're giving yourself a better chance at actually winning and and these results are um, proof of that yeah, showing some aggression um, and such, uh, asking yourself uh, at certain times in the race, is this the moment and taking those opportunities? And, you know, we do talk about in, you know, I've been trying to give some advice to a lot of age groupers when they're coming up for their most recent races about, you know, following your plan, but taking opportunities to race when it presents itself. And and we are all about consistency and, you know, negative splitting and, and r- running and riding and swimming to a pace. They're all things that we advocate you know, at the top of our list, but but we also advocate that we want you to race. 
uh, and those opportunities will come and you have to take them. And, and the guys who set themselves and girls who set themselves apart from the rest of the field are the ones taking those opportunities when they present themselves. And, and she's done that absolutely beautifully. In almost every event, when, it's, when it counts the most, she's the one who steps up. Um, and, you know, you, we've always said you want to attack the field when they're on their knees. That's the best time, even though you're still on your knees as well. Um, you know, well, what do I mean by that? When you're when the field's suffering the most, when they're huffing and puffing the most, that's the time to attack because that will destroy the mindset of the others. Um, and you're bluffing in some way, but it, you only need sometimes 10 metres um, and that 10 metres can end up being, you know, 50 metres and then all of a sudden the field starts ri- racing or riding for second. Um, how many examples have we seen where people have got away solo and the best riders in the world, whether there's three of them or 10 of them, never catch them? Um, you know, nine out of 10 times, they'll never get caught um, unless there's someone with a vested interest or a teammate who will bury themselves to, to bridge the gap. So, you know, she's done so, so well in, in being able to repeat. And, you know, the others know that she's strong. The others know she's winning, yet she's still makes the moves. And and I often ask the question, how do pros beat pros? Well, it's moments in the race that you catch people unawares or, or you know, you're, you're basically testing the mettle of other people when it hurts the most. And, you know, no matter how good a form you're in, if you're struggling at a, at a moment and someone attacks you, you know that, oh, God, I'm not – I'm not up for that. I need to. I need to. You know, wait a bit, and th- and that's the winning move. So, yeah, I just think it's brilliant. Yeah, and you spoke about this a little bit in the last uh, podcast episode, but um, on the male side of things, there's just there are select few riders that seem to be winning everything, and um, with these last few races done now, it's actually if you look at the last um, nine monument races on the men's side, three riders have won seven of the nine. So Vanderpool's won Milan San Remo, Flanders and Roubaix. Remco's won Liège based on Liège twice and the Pogs won Flanders and Lombardia. And the Pog potentially could have um won Liège um but he crashed out so um didn't get his chance. But for you know those three riders, they're exactly what you're talking about. Um Vanderpol, Remco and Pog, um, they just make those moments happen when the race seems to be the hardest. I feel like Remco is a is a gun for that. He just seems to turn the screws when guys are hurting the most. And Tom Pidcock was with Remco and Remco just rode away from him. Um, he, he, he called him through for a turn. Pidcock said, no, nah, I'm too stuffed. And Remco just rode away from him, which um, Pidcock said he was on his limit. And then Remco rode away. It was pretty special to watch. And it's been pretty special to watch these guys race the last couple of years. Good lesson for, for those listening too with what Pidcock did. Um, I watched his interview and he said, if I'd have kept with um, uh, Remco, I would have possibly finished out of the top 10 because I would have blown myself to pieces trying to keep up with him. So I limited my losses and I was willing to risk it with the group behind and back myself in. And, I, and that's a tactic that can be used as well. Um, so there's you know there's more than one way to, to actually get a result. And I'm not talking about uh, – obviously, Remco was too good on the day and and Pidcock realized that and and he was basically riding for second, which is, you know, something that you wouldn't advocate to anybody. You're trying to do your best and well, should you stay with him and risk everything and come first or nothing? Um, and there's another debate for discussion there uh, down the track. But, but you know, I, I admire him for, for thinking things through and, um, and living to fight another day. But, you know, you've got those three riders plus Wout van Aert and, and – uh, Roglic and you know I just can't wait for the Giro that's coming up and and it's such an exciting uh, race to see how Demi goes and how the male uh, races pan out because it's a really you know 
good field that's assembled for the Giro and and can Demi Vollering do that as a tour stage rider um, that's the next thing for me is uh, to see you know can she ma- match what she's done as a, as a one day classic rider um, in, a, in a stage race I think she's definitely capable of doing that um, so yeah I'm excited uh, to see what's what's coming up and um, look forward to um, but disappointed that Liège Baston didn't get the the Remco versus um Pogacar um, showdown, but uh, that's that's racing, isn't it? And um, you know, you can only you can only race who's there at the mm-hmm. end. And and if the pog crashes, that's that's part of racing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, will be interesting to see the pogs form because he's he literally has to have six weeks off the bike. Like it was quite a bad crash in his arm, so he's taking full time off training. Um, so how will he go getting back into form for the Tour de France? Not sure. We'll find out. But we'll leave it there for this episode. So much has been happening. We were so excited to talk about all these events. It's been so cool to watch um, so many of these different races, marathons, um, cycling races, um, the yeah, the PTO um, race that's coming up is actually going to be so awesome to finally get to see Jan Fredino and Christian Blomfeld go head-to-head. Um, that's going to be awesome. And as you said, it's the 10 best female triathletes are all on the start line, which is going to be super exciting. So that's it from us. Anything else from you before we finish? No, look, we're, we're really coming into the summer racing series uh, in the Northern Hemisphere and it's uh, obviously the winter time in, in the Southern Hemisphere in Australia. So um, we've got lots to look forward to, lots of viewing on telly, lots of races that we can uh, stay up till all hours of the night, um, uh, you know, dissecting and watching and and. You know, for everybody out there listening, you can learn so much by watching the professionals and how they go about it and how they prepare and how they execute. Um, they won't always get it right and that's what we're trying to point out. There's mistakes being made everywhere um, but if, if you're not willing to learn by your mistakes, you might as well, you know, not race and, uh, and you know, it should be the odds uh, one out of ten will work and if you've tried nine out of ten, you know, that's in my opinion better than than just you know expecting to win every time and put that pressure on yourself it's all about the you know the preparation the journey and then getting to race day and just doing the best you can on the day and and being in tune with uh you know moves that are being made and and the pace you're trying to ride swim and run at or ride at if you're a cyclist or run at if you're a marathon runner and getting those things right and you know the example i gave with the 229 runner that that is an example of people not actually getting it right and then not realizing <laughs> yeah. what they did wrong. Yeah. Um, and these are things that I think that uh, that if you can get something out of this podcast today, when we talk about, you know, the elite people, there is lots of lessons to be learned for the everyday age grouper um, who's who's wanting to get a best, better version of themselves. Yep, spot on. That's a great way to finish. Thanks as always for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.